Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. I'm looking forward to sharing this message with you today. I, I think that this message is a, uh, it's a message of hope. It's a message that speaks to each and every one of us. I think that the people that were baptized this morning have kind of found the truth of this message, and so I, I hope that it, it speaks to the rest of us that are here this morning or anybody that's struggling uh, this morning and, and kind of wondering where to go. And maybe you're here because you're looking for that answer in God. I think you've come to the right place. If I can hear a good amen from somebody in the room, amen. But uh, in talking about this message, you know, thinking about it and putting it together and looking at the story that we're about to tell today, I think it's funny. Um, so I'm 42 now, the, the ripe old age of 42. I look like I'm 22, I know, but I'm actually 42. Um, but it, it's funny who we end up becoming. You know what I mean? As you get older, can I hear any other 40-year-olds and up? You know what I'm talking about. It's kind of funny who you ended up becoming, like maybe who we end up becoming isn't exactly who we plan to be. Anybody in your teen years ever thought or maybe ever said out loud, I'll never be like my mom. I'll never be like my dad, right? And then like starting at age 37, you can't stop turning off the thermostat. Can I hear a good amen? Turn off your lights. There's nobody up here. I've gotten to the point where even if my kids are downstairs and they left lights on upstairs, I make them go all the way upstairs to turn off the lights. I'm not going to do it for them while I'm up there because I want them to experience some pain. But they just keep getting exercise. <laughs> but, uh, you know, or, or maybe you've told your spouse or your significant other, you're turning into your dad. That's usually followed by a fist fight, right? And you're turning into your mom is usually find, followed by sleeping on the couch uh, I think it's funny that people go to college for years and years and years and years and years. Then you end up in jobs that have nothing to do with your degree. Can I hear an amen? Who knew that competitive basket weaving wouldn't translate into a great career? But uh, who we become isn't exactly who we plan to be. And that happens for all of us, and that's not even necessarily a negative. I mean, for some of us, thank God we didn't end up to be who we planned to be. But whether this is financially, whether it's in your marriage, or maybe whether it's in your marriages, right? Maybe it's in your career, maybe it's with or as a parent, or just as, as people. It just who we plan to be isn't exactly who we turn out to be. I, I, I can remember... You know, this applies to our parents as well. Do you guys remember the time or the day, the moment you realized that your parents were like normal people, like with their own hopes and dreams when they were younger, till we came along and absolutely crushed those dreams beneath the weight of diapers and tuition, right? I mean, just we all have plans on who we're going to be. We have designs on who we're going to be. We get some help along the way. And that brings up a great question because who helped you plan who you're going to be? Who, who spoke into you? Who fed you dreams? Who challenged you? Who inspired you? Whose life and example and value and ethics are in you, right? And for some of us, that person wasn't around, or maybe for some of us, that person was around, but they were distracted or busy or trying to provide for us, and so that relationship was kind of strained. I know that Chelsea, uh, being in early childhood education like she is me, uh, being a pastor, becoming a pastor, you realize very quickly just how vital 
the home is, just how vital good parents are to set children up for success. And I would say to everybody in this room, whether you're a parent or you have parents, which I think covers us all, but good parents, they cannot be overvalued. Hello, good parents cannot be overvalued. Wherever you have chance and wherever you have opportunity, honor your parents and thank your parents for their sacrifices and what they have done in your life. Honor your kids by being a good parent. Can I say, and, or can I hear an amen from somebody in the room? I, uh, I give honor to my parents this morning. I also give apologies to my parents. You tried, you tried. But, uh, but who we become isn't always who we plan to be. Who we become isn't always who we dreamed of being and who we looked up to and who we wanted to imitate. We don't always get there. And yet with God, this is so beautiful to me, with God, whatever version of yourself you ended up being, it's enough. Did you hear me this morning? Whatever version of yourself you ended up becoming, it's enough with God. What is it enough for? It's enough for him to find. It's enough for him to rescue. It's enough for him to forgive and to restore and to breathe new life and new possibilities into. Even when it seemed like there was no way we would ever have something different than what we were on the track to get with God, whatever version of yourself you have become, it is enough. It's enough. And I love this idea, the concept of redemption, which is, you know, this, this kind of weird religious word, and we don't really use this a ton in everyday life, but if you've ever used a coupon, then you understand the idea of redemption and what redeeming might look like. If you have a $10 Subway coupon, you can't take that to Exxon and get $10 worth of gas. It doesn't work. If you try and use a Subway coupon at Exxon, it's useless there. You only find value for that coupon when you use it where it was designed and intended to be used. That little piece of paper only has value where it was created to serve a purpose. And so you take that same piece of paper that's valueless and worthless at Exxon, take it to Subway, and you'll walk out with a sub of the day sandwiches and a Coke. Hello. That's good news. That's good. And so it is with God. Our lives seem pointless in the ways that we were, the places that we were, the things that we were doing, the behaviors that we have kind of, you know, adopted onto ourselves. And it just, like, we had questions of what life meant. And we had done things that we have regrets for. And we wish we could go back and, and get a do over. And we just couldn't. But with God, whatever version of yourself you have become, it is enough for God to redeem, to pick us up off the ground, to, to clean us up as it were so people can see the potential in us again and then to bring us back to the purpose for which we were created and for us to find value again and if we will allow him to work out his purpose and work out his plan for our lives he can put us in the position that we were created where we were created to serve a purpose and he redeems broken people thank you jesus he redeems broken dreams. He redeems broken hearts. It's redemption. It's redemption. And so who we become with him may not be exactly who we plan to be, but it is so much better. It's so much better than where we sometimes find ourselves on our own.
And I think there's a story in the Bible that, that illustrates this maybe better than any other story in the Bible, and it's the story of a man named Jacob. And Jacob's story is a cautionary story, but I think it's hopeful. It seems really full of contradictions. I mean, Jacob seems to be exactly who God would not choose to carry out his, or to carry on his hope for the world. And that's, I read the story of Jacob and I read God's favor and God's kindness and God's mercies to Jacob. And I'm like, God, what is up with that? Like, why in the world would you use him? He seems to have done so many things that should have disqualified him from even being mentioned in the Bible, maybe as a footnote of an evil person, a con artist. But yet in Jacob, we see something so strange and, and, and kind of confusing. But I think I, I understand now how Jacob, as flawed as he was and dishonest as he was and manipulative as he was, I think I see how Jacob is actually a credit to God rather than a stain on God's reputation. Because see, God had promised Jacob's grandfather, listen, I'm going to pull you into relationship with myself. I'm going to bless you. And then guess what? I'm going to bless your family. I'm going to be good to your family. And through you and through your family, everybody else is going to look at you guys and, and see how blessed you are living in relationship with me. And you are going to be the way that I invite the rest of the world into relationship with myself. And so Abraham kind of goes on from that promise, and he has a few hiccups, you know, but pretty much he's a good guy. He's got a life that's, that's admirable, and, and we would want to imitate. He's called the father of the faith. Um, everybody seems to like him. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Abra Isaac was a great guy, but really his life was kind of boring in a very good way. Like he didn't really do anything to disqualify him or that you would think, well, God, I don't understand why you would like Isaac. But then comes Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, two generations removed from the promise. And it's the first real test when you see just how messed up of a person Jacob is. It's kind of the first real test. Is God going to abandon his promise to Abraham or is God going to keep it? And God unwaveringly keeps his promise to Abraham in Jacob. And when Jacob exits the stage of history, he's a vastly different character than the one who stepped onto the stage of history as a heel grabber. Everybody say heel grabber. Maybe you never used that word or that phrase before, but you're going to hear it a lot today. Yes, Jacob was a heel grabber. Like I tell my brother all the time, firstborn is first place. Second born is just the first loser. Can I hear an amen? No, you don't have to amen that. That's all right. But even more for Jacob's family, living in this time that he lived in all those years ago, the firstborn, the first son, really, because they were kind of, you know, discriminatory against women back then, but the first son was blessed, and the firstborn son had an inheritance of the family possessions, and the inherit. by the way, in case that created any tension for anybody, Jesus changed all that, so... We're good. I'm telling you how it was, but thank you, Jesus. That's not the way. Has no amen from the late. Can I hear a ladies amen out there? All right. Three of y'all are convinced. The rest of y'all are offended. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. It's not even in my notes. It's on me. My bad. Okay. But the firstborn got the inheritance of the family possessions. The firstborn got the inheritance of the spiritual position. They got the Abraham of covenant, or the covenant of Abraham, rather. That was supposed to pass on through the firstborn of each of those families. And, and then Jacob's mom, you know, again, just 
starting up the, the second generation removed from Abraham, she had a rough pregnancy and she thought like this WWE wrestling match was going on in her belly and ter- pretty much it turns out that's exactly what was going on. And so it came time for her to have a baby and they didn't have like, uh, what's it called? Ultrasounds or sonogram? Which one? Both? Okay, so she didn't have one of those. They, they, they didn't have those back then. All they knew was that that baby, whatever was inside her, was like alien. It was, you know, trying to get out, and it was strange and gave her indigestion and heartburn all the time. And finally, she's going to have the baby, and here comes the baby, and the baby comes out head first. And something's weird about this baby, though. It's super hairy. And then, you know, one foot comes out, and the next foot comes out, and oh my goodness, an extra hand is attached to the foot. But, oh, it's just another baby. It was just twins. Everything's okay. And there comes Jacob, the fraternal twin, literally grabbing Esau's heel. Literally, as a newborn, holding on to the foot of his seconds older brother as they are born, literally struggling to be born first, literally wrestling from the womb. Esau, the firstborn, and Jacob, the secondborn, are born. And Esau is weird looking, and he's red, and he's hairy. He looks like Chewbacca with a hair dye job. And he's a hunter, and he's a fieldsman as he grows grows up. Turns out he was born with an anchor tattoo and big forearms and loves spinach. And dad loves Esau, and Esau is rough and tumble. And then there's heel grabber, Jacob, and he's pale and fair-skinned. And they live in the desert, and sunscreen hasn't been invented. This is going to be a rough life for the heel grabber. He's second place for sure, and he hates the outdoors, and he plays Fortnite in his tent all day, and he's a mama's boy. And boy, does mama love him more than rough and smelly Esau. And heel grabber, every birthday is reminded that he's second. Every birthday It's Esau who's first. He knows that if he had just been the first one out, if he had been the blessed one, it would be his inheritance. And Esau's not really even all the way older. His hands were on Esau's foot. The tips of his fingers are older than Esau's feet. But it doesn't count for anything. And he wishes so bad that he was first. And from the very beginning of his life, he's scheming to get gifts and he's scheming to get noticed. And all his growing up years are full of desperate attempts to be first at something, to not be left up with with leftovers, to not be left with hand-me-downs. Any second-born children know about hand-me-downs in the room. I was the firstborn. I still somehow know about hand-me-downs. We were pretty broke growing up. Jason and I had, I think, all of the Nelson's old clothes, right, Jason, growing up? And I had them like a year after they went out of style. Jason had them about three years after they went out of style. But my parents never really claimed Jason as their kid anyway, so it was okay. But then Jacob just often ends up disappointed. Jacob, he's often bested by stronger, wilder, rangier Esau, and Esau always wins at archery, and Esau is always killing the deer first and dressing the deer in record time, and Jacob's kneeling by the wounded deer and just apologizing for shooting Bambi with the arrow, and Esau is rough and crude, and Esau is unkind and unconcerned with formalities and rituals and roles. He didn't even care 
Yet he was the firstborn. He didn't even seem to think about being the firstborn. He didn't value being the firstborn. And that just, man, that just made Jacob so ate up on the inside. He couldn't stand. The Esau didn't even value what he had gotten. And so one day, Esau's coming home from the hunt. And Esau's starving, and he's hiking over hills and mountains and stalking and tracking, but this time he comes up empty and no deer for dinner. And as he drags on the pathway home, his nose gets a whiff of something besides his B.O. And it's soup, which just seems like a strange thing if you're hot and sweaty to be hungry for. But he smells soup. And his steps get quicker, and he's got this new bounce in his steps, and he comes through the gate, and he sees Jacob right there by the gate to the family ranch, and Jacob's got a huge pot of stew on, and he says to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. And I know that's the words that are recorded in the Bible, but it kind of came out like, that's my best Chewbacca imitation. i got to scratch that one for the next time I preach this message. So he, he comes in and he just roars, you know, give me some of that stew. His voice deep and booming and, and, and you know, the heel grabber, Jacob, the con artist, looks up. He said, oh, oh, this stew? Oh, would you look at that? I was making a pot of stew and didn't even realize I was making a pot of stew right here right by the gate where you would come home when I knew you would be hungry. Sure, I'll give you some of this stool, but this, this stew, but first, sell me your birthright. First, why don't you go ahead and give me your position? Why don't you go ahead and give me the inheritance? He's planned this. He knows that Esau's coming. He knows that Esau couldn't care less about the birthright. And, and they don't have pen and paper there, but they use oaths and swearing. And there's probably a witness nearby, a servant or somebody. And, and so Esau swears to him selling his birthright to Jacob, selling his position to Jacob for a pot of bean soup. For a pot of bean soup. And then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew and he ate and he drank, and then he got up and left. There's no big deal. So Esau despised his birthright, the thing that made him the legal heir, the thing that would make him the master of his own destiny. He just did not care. But Jacob does. Jacob does. And then you fast forward a few years to the time when their father's about to die. Isaac is about to die, and Isaac knows that he's about to die. And Isaac has gone blind by this point. His eyesight is totally gone, and, and he's bedridden. And so he calls Esau his favorite son, Esau, which is kind of jacked up when you think about it. He has a favorite son, but he calls his favorite son, and he tells him, hey, listen, I'm about to die, and, and it's time for me to pass on the spiritual blessing. It's time for me to, to make you the head of this family, and, and this is going to make you the leader, and Jacob and all the rest of the servants are going to serve you now, Esau, and the covenant that God made with Abraham and the covenant that God has made with me, it's going to continue through you, Esau. This is the time for me to pass on the blessing. But first, first, go kill a deer, kill some turkeys or whatever you want. There's that, that favorite way that you season the meat. I love that. Go and, and kill something fresh and make me that meal first and then bring it back to me and I will pass on the blessing to you. So Esau grabs his bow and he heads out to the hunt. Well, guess what? Mom has heard the whole conversation. 
And she runs into Jacob's tent because Esau is Isaac's favorite son, but Jacob is her favorite son. She runs into Jacob's tent and turns off the Xbox and tells him, quick, get up. It's time for the blessing to be passed on. Go get me some goats. I'm going to make your father's favorite meal, and he's going to pass the blessing on to you. And Jacob's like, there's no way he's going to believe it's me. I'm hairless. And Esau looks like Chewbacca. Dad is blind, but dad's not dumb. There's no way this is going to work. She tells him, go and kill the goats. And when you slaughter the goats for the meal, bring me the skins also. And so he does. And she makes the the meal. And then she takes the skins. This blows my mind. She takes the goat skins and ties them onto Jacob's arms and ties goat skin around the back of Jacob's neck. And then she gets some of Esau's clothes out of the laundry and makes Jacob put Esau's clothes on. And now Jacob just smells bad. Smells like Esau and Jacob goes into blind dad's tent and his heart's racing a million beats a minute. And he's like, hi, dad. I'm, <clears throat> hi, dad. It's Esau. I'm here with a meal that you asked me for. And now it's time for you to put your hands on my head and pray for me and pass the blessing of covenant and position and possessions on to me. And Isaac's like, well, you don't sound like Esau. So come a little closer so I can touch you and touches the skins on his arm, grabs him around the back of the neck. How messed up that Esau was so hairy. He felt like a goat. Like, come on, and some of you ladies are like, yep, that's my husband's back. I know that feeling exactly. Last time I got a haircut, I had to ask the lady to shave a little bit below the t-shirt line. 42, it ain't kind to all of us. Can I hear an amen? Somebody. Hair starts growing out our ears and our nose. What is up with that? I don't need long. And then you get gray nose hairs. That's just cruel because it looks like you got something in your nose and you have to pluck it. All right, TMI for church on Sunday. And Isaac's like, well, man, you don't sound like Esau, but you feel like Esau. So why don't you come a little closer and, and kiss my forehead? So he went to him and kissed him. And look at this. When Isaac caught the smell, oh, that's Esau. When he caught the smell of Esau, he blessed him. Jacob, wearing goat skins and pretending to be his brother, trembles and falls to his knees beside the family bed. And Isaac takes his hands and puts them on Jacob's head. And he prays the prayer of blessing. And Jacob stole position with God and the possessions of the family literally right out from under his blind father's nose and away from his cursed older brother. Heel grabber, con artist, plays dirty, second place. He's a thief. He's not good enough. He's not deserving enough. He's the unwanted twin. I wonder if twins ever realize that at least one of them was unplanned. Esau's... (laughs) Red hot with anger. He says, Esau, the Bible tells us that Esau holds a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. And he says to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. And then I will kill my brother Jacob. He's gone too far. This is too much. I'm going to kill him. I'm going to take my brother's life. So mom finds out about it. And she tells Jacob, go ahead and run away. Go to Uncle Laban's house, my brother's house. And 
So Jacob, in the middle of the night, it doesn't even look like he gets to tell his own dad, his dying dad, goodbye, although he's not sure that his dad wants to meet with him anyway. And so he sneaks away to his uncle's house. And on the way there, this strange thing happens where God shows up to Jacob in a dream and God confirms his covenant promise with the heel grabber. He tells him, I'm with you and I'll watch over you wherever you go and I'm going to bring you back to this land. You're leaving now, but I'm going to bring you back to this land and I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. And in spite of Jacob's stealing and in spite of Jacob's just desperate heart and wickedness and evil, God sees something in Jacob and he says, now that I, it's kind of like God is saying, now that I've got your attention, there is enough left in you. You're not becoming, you didn't plan this, you didn't ever think that this would be your story, but I see something and where it might be impossible on your, on your own, I am God and I will do what I promise to do to you and for you. So Jacob wakes up and he thinks and he realizes, man, God was in this place and I didn't even know it. What a beautiful and sad statement that Jacob makes. Surely God was in this place and I didn't even know it. I'm running from my brother. I'm running from what I've just done to my family and my dad. What are the chances that I would meet God here? What are the chances that as we find ourselves running from the messes we've made that we would happen to meet God? What are the chances that when you were broken and desperate and didn't know where to turn that someone would invite you to church? That someone would tell you that they're praying for you? Who knew that God would actually be so close and so accessible? And Jacob does what we all do, and we've talked about this before, and we always will because it's so human. Jacob makes a bargain with God. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then, then I'll serve you. Then you get to be my God. You get to be my God. Everybody say if. God, if you will, then I will. God, if you will, then I promise I'll do better next time. But God has got Jacob's attention. And God begins to start Jacob's education into the desperate and horrible consequences of running a con. And God teaches him the lesson by none other than his uncle Laban. Turns out that being a con artist ran in the family. His uncle, his mom, and now Jacob. Turns out that more than one thing ran in the family. Because see, there weren't very, very many people alive back then. And so, there was a lot of intermarrying back then. Family reunions were a great place to find a date. So Jacob found a date. It was his cousin Rachel. And they weren't just going to be kissing cousins. They were going to be, let's get married and have some kids and settle down cousins. And Rachel was beautiful and easy on the eye. You can go ahead and say, ew, it's all right. Go for it. There you go. Get it out. All right. Rachel's beautiful. Easy on the eyes. It's kind of innocent and wonderful all through her story. And then Rachel has a sister named Leah. And listen, this might be offensive to some. I'm just going to tell the story like it is. And apologies to anyone named Leah. But Leah in Genesis was very, very not pretty. The Bible said, Genesis says that she had weak eyes. And we don't really know what that means. It was some kind of Hebrew colloquialism to basically say that she was ugly. You guys know what ugly stands for, right? U-G-L-Y. 
Now, there's, everybody's thinking you ain't got no alibi. This U-G-L-Y stands for you gots to love yourself. That's what it means. So Jacob tells Uncle Laban, listen, I Leah's nice. She's got a great personality, but I want to marry Rachel. And Laban looks at him and says, okay, the price is seven years of hard labor. You're going to work for me. And Jacob does it. And Jacob serves seven years to get Rachel, but they seem like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Can I hear an awe? Yes, seven years to pay the price for marrying Rachel and the rest of his life. Real? No, I'm just kidding. But he gets way more than he bargained for. Literally gets way more than he bargained for. Because see, they have a ceremony and Uncle Laban's the father of the bride and he invites the whole neighborhood over. Come over to the ceremony. It's a huge celebration and everybody's feasting and dancing and drinking probably. And Jacob is right there with everybody, you know, and probably drinks a little bit too much. And I love the way the New Living Translation kind of explains what happened the next morning. When Jacob wakes up in his tent the next morning, birds are chirping and it's kind of crisp morning air, right? And she's probably laying on her side and facing away from him, and he sees her shoulder, and he's the luckiest man alive to be married to Rachel. We got Rachel, and he's thinking, how cute. Rachel snores a little bit when she sleeps. And you remember when you first got married, and it was cute when your wife snored, and you know, just you know, maybe he touches her hair, maybe he touches her shoulder, and he whispers gently, Good morning, my love. She rolls over and she smiles, but it was Leah. It was Leah. Turns out she didn't have to love herself after all. Turns out Uncle Laban slipped the ugly one into Jacob's tent under the cover of darkness. When the party was over and the honeymoon was about to begin, he tells Jacob, go into the tent and I'll walk her to your door. You know, it's kind of weird, but I'm marrying my cousin anyway. Whatever, just go ahead. And so how fitting is it? How fitting is it that the con artist who tricked his blind father into giving him the family blessing gets tricked in the same way to end up married to a girl he did not want? God teaching Jacob, let's talk about getting what you deserve. It's almost like God's telling them, how do you like it, you heel grabber? How do you like it, you con man, you backstabber? And Jacob has always relied on his own wits, but now he's starting to realize, maybe I'm not as smart as I thought I was. Maybe, maybe conning people has consequences and causes pain. And can you imagine Leah? Her own dad has done this. Her own father, her own family has approved of this. And now Jacob is married to her, but he doesn't really want her. And Jacob realizes maybe, just maybe, I need a change because I didn't plan on this. But who we become, it's not always exactly who we plan to be. I didn't think it would turn out like this. I thought I'd be further by now. Can I hear an amen from somebody? I thought I'd be wealthier than I am right now. Can I hear a better amen from somebody in the room? I th thought my home would be stable. I thought my career would be on a good path. I thought I'd be a better person. I thought I'd have accomplished more by now. I didn't think I'd still be struggling with this. Didn't think I'd still be addicted to this. Didn't think that it would always have me in its hold. I never dreamed that years later, 
I would be stuck with something that I can barely stand to look at. And I'm not talking about another person. I'm talking about when we look in the mirror and we know that who we turned out to be was not at all who we planned to be when it all began. And now Jacob is the husband in an unplanned, unwanted marriage. And it's almost like he goes on this self-destructive binge and he marries not only Leah, but he marries her personal attendant girl. Now he's got two wives and neither one of them's Rachel. But he talks to Laban. Laban says, sure, I'll still let you marry Rachel. And so he ends up marrying Rachel too, but he's got to work another seven years. Uncle Laban was a con man. Got 14 years of labor. Then Jacob decides to just go, and by the way, yeah, I had this in my notes. I guarantee you on his honeymoon night with Rachel, he asked her for three forms of ID, a current utilities bill, and make her take a DNA test before he let her in the tent, right? All the lights are on. We're... Back-to-back weddings. Back-to-back-to-back weddings. Then he marries Rachel as attendant too. Back-to-back-to-back-to-back. Four, whatever that is. Weddings. And now it's a jacked-up family, and Jacob knows that it is, but he's still kind of at the end of his wits and still kind of self-destructing because who we become isn't always who we planned that we were going to be. And as you can imagine, family relationships in that family, they're broken. His relationship with Laban and with his other cousins, the other sons, is, it's just broken. And Jacob is still over the herds. He's still got to work off his contract, but he's a con man. He's going to get Laban back. And so he starts working it so that all the healthy livestock, all the healthy sheep, all the healthy camels, he gets them all for himself. And Uncle Laban, somehow, we don't know what's going on with the books. Why are they in the oven? Somebody's cooking the books. There's a sorry pun that nobody laughed at. But Jacob works it out, and it turns out that now his Uncle Laban is on the edge of poverty as an old man, and Jacob's cousins, the brothers of his wife, want to kill Jacob. Sound familiar? For the second time in his life, Jacob has again done something so unforgivable to his family that he has to pack up and sneak away. But now he's got four wives and herds and hired hands and tents and stuff and kids, kids, kids. God's hope for the world. God's hope for the world. And this heel grabbing isn't just messing with his life anymore. Now it's affecting others. And isn't that what ends up happening to us? We thought it would be our own private little thing. We thought that nobody else would know about it. It's not hurting anybody. We're not asking anything of anybody, but suddenly the ripples of our behavior start spreading in ever-widening circles, and they touch our neighbors and our careers, touch our finances and our credit, touch our relationships, touch our families, touch our kids, touch our marriages, and we didn't mean to. We never intended for that to happen, but who we become isn't exactly who we planned ourselves to be. That's where Jacob is. So he gets up. God tells him it's time for you to go home. Hopefully you've learned your lesson. And so Jacob gets up, gets everything, heads towards his original home, puts the killing cousins behind him and points his camel at a murderous brother named Esau. And then on his way there, his scouts come back and they tell Jacob some troubling news. Esau knows you're coming home. And Esau's got 400 men with him. Esau is on his way to meet you. Because Esau has been running the family business on his own and enjoying everything on his own while you're gone. But he knows that you legally have the right to take it all away from him. And Esau is coming to meet you. Esau has 400 men. 
And so Jacob, the schemer, this, this blows my mind what happens next. He starts scheming a way to minimize his losses. But now his losses are not just money or clothes or things like that. Now his losses are children. Now his losses are women and people. And Jacob has to start scheming a way to minimize his losses. And it says in great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and herds and camels as well. And he thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, that one group that is left may escape. Can you imagine gambling with your children's lives? Can you imagine gambling with half of your family? And then finally, at the end of himself, seeing no better solution, at the end of his own wits, at the end of his own abilities and his strength, finally, finally, Jacob prayed. Finally, Jacob prayed. And he tells God, I'm unworthy of all the kindness and the faithfulness that you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. But it's not really what I always planned on becoming. God, when I dreamed of marrying the girl of my dreams, I never thought it would happen four times with three of them not being the girl of my dreams. God, when I dreamed of becoming wealthy, I never imagined it would happen by stealing from my uncle. God, when I dreamed of traveling the world, I never dreamed it would be because I was running from someone else who wanted to kill me. When I dreamed of counting my wealth and my blessings and my, my children, I never imagined it would be to divide their number in half so that only half of them would be slaughtered and hopefully the other half would escape because who we become isn't exactly who we planned to be. And then finally, Jacob says two words that so many of us have said so many times, and they hold power if you will stick to them and, and, and follow them through to their logical end. And Jacob says this, save me. Save me. Save me from Esau, yes. Save me from Laban. Save me from harm and from death and sorrow and from being homeless and a wanderer, but save me because I've done all this to myself. Save me, not just my circumstances, save me. And that night, Jacob divvied up big herds of camels and goats and donkeys, and he sent them in waves, one after the other, all his gifts to his brother Esau. They were to go on ahead of everybody and meet Esau so that Esau would receive a huge gift of wealth and possessions, and then before he would go too much further, he'd receive another one. Jacob's trying to do everything that he knows to do to get his brother Esau to not want to kill him and his family. And then Jacob takes his family that night and divides them into two parts. And he kisses his wives, even Leah. Kisses his kids, who knew if it was going to be the last time that he touched each of them, held each of them in his arms. If you can put yourself into that scene, there are tears. There are regrets that night. There was crying that night. There was regret and deep sorrow over what dad has done. And Jacob divides his family into two parts and sends them on their way. And he remains alone in the camp, poking sticks into the fire, thinking of all the ways that life could have gone if he had just, if they had just, if this had just or that had just. Weeping, I'm sure, heartbroken, I'm sure, and I think still praying under his breath, save me, God, from what I done to myself. And then we run into one of the strangest scriptures, I think, in all the Bible. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him 
till daybreak. Where'd the man come from? Who's this guy coming to rest? How'd he get there? Like, was it a sneak attack? Was it a friendly conversation that turned ugly? We don't know. All we know is that they wrestled, but Jacob had been wrestling all his life. Jacob had been wrestling since before he was born, grabbing onto a heel. He was the heel grabber. And I think all of Jacob's frustration and anger and regret came boiling out. I think his his adrenaline kicked in and Jacob started winning the match, which is really strange once we find out who the man is that Jacob is wrestling with. The man turns out to be the appearance of God. When the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, God could not overpower Jacob. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. He can't overpower Jacob, but God knows judo. Don't ever forget that. He pops Jacob's hip out of his socket and he brings Jacob to the end of Jacob. Oh, come on, somebody. He brings Jacob to the end of what Jacob can do. He brings Jacob to the point where he realizes his weakness. He realizes that he has no other recourse, no other strength, no other base to fight from. And finally, Jacob has to look to God. To God. And at whatever point it is, Jacob realizes this is not a random stranger that I am wrestling with. And Jacob changes and turns from wrestling to clinging because at some point he realized that God had turned from wrestling to threatening to walk away. What a scary thing it is to have God stop fighting with us and to turn and to walk away. You don't ever want to get to the point where you stop wrestling with your conscience because God has walked away. You don't ever want to reach the moment where you realize that you've been living life all along and you never really thought that you needed God and so God has walked away. I think that at times the worst possible thing that could happen to us is for God to answer some of our prayers. For God to do some things our way. For God to support and reinforce our choices. And hopefully before we get to that point, we can realize what Jacob realized, that getting his own way with God was the quickest way to losing everything. So Jacob takes life-altering action and he holds on to God and won't let him go without a blessing. He's, he's fought and he's gotten his own way with people, but if he does the same thing with God, he's going to end up losing everything. He has prayed, save me, God, and this is what his salvation looks like. So Jacob changes from grappling to grabbing on. He switches from half Nelsons and headlocks to holding on for dear life to a waste slipping down a leg to a calf to an ankle to the foot when the hand comes down to pry his foot off his hands off he grabs onto the hand the arm again he's back up to the waist that's like a three-year-old you're trying to put to bed at night can i hear an amen (laughs) but jacob refuses to let god go and then jacob says something so beautiful so instructive. This this is the takeaway. This is where we have to be. This is what we have to learn. If you ever find yourself 
to be someone that you never planned on being, if you ever find yourself wrestling with things you never intended or dreamed that you would wrestle with your whole life and circumstances and troubles you never imagined would be part of your story, I want to tell you this morning, and in a little bit, we're going to open up the altar and come and worship and sing together, and I'm telling you, whether it's here, whether it's home on your own, I'm telling you, if you can just be like Jacob, just be like the heel grabber and get a hold of God and tell him that you are not going to let him go. Give God your anger. Give God your frustration. Give God your hurt. But don't stop there. Give God your selfishness and give God your pride. Come on, somebody. Give God your ego and your tendencies and your behaviors and everything that has left us where we are. And say to God what Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Find a prayer closet, I'm telling you. Find a time when the kids are gone and the husband's at work or the wife's at work. Find a place where you can get real with God. Find a place where you can make some noise with God and tell God, I've been making plans on my own and I've been living life on my own, but now I see where it has left me and where it has led me to and I'm tired of me. I've come to the end of me. I don't want to do me anymore. I want you. I'm going to grab onto you. I'm going to hold onto you. I'm never going to let you go. I'm not going to let you walk away from me. The beautiful thing is when you hold on to God like that, you start winning the match. God cannot walk away God, now that I am where I am. God, now that I am who I am. But since you have come so close that I can reach out and grab hold of you, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me, until you change me. And the man looked at Jacob, and he gets to the heart of the issue, and he asks him, what's your name? What's your name? What's your name? Who are you? Do you realize that God never asks a question because he lacks information. God never asks a question that he doesn't know the answer to. But questions from God are always a setup for revelation to ourselves. Who are you? Tell me your identity. Tell me who you are. And in his pain with his hip dislocated, in his fear with his enemy around the corner, and in his silly, just futile wisdom... The best that he could think of, the best he could come up with, is family divided in half so that only half would get slaughtered. Who are you? Who are you? See, at different times in his life, I think Jacob would give different answers. Just pulling off a con, just getting over on Esau, just getting back at Uncle Laban, I I think that all of those things lead to different responses. But this night, alone in his fear and alone with his regret, sitting by the fire after having just sent off his wife, his wives and his kids, he surveys the whole of his life and he realizes that everything that he thought was making him a winner had left him a loser. And so he answers, I am Jacob. I'm the heel grabber. I'm the con artist. I'm the one who came second and I've been trying to do things that I thought would make me first. I didn't care if it hurt Esau. I didn't care if it ruined my relationship with my dying father. I didn't care If it divided my family back then, I never thought it would end up dividing my family now, my children, my possessions, my home, 
heel grabber is never who I thought I would become. It's never who I planned to be. But I love God's response. Your name will no longer be Jacob, but your name will be Israel. Heel grabber, that's who you were. Heel grabber, that's who your family said you were. That's who your parents said you were. That's who your past has declared you to be. But you will not be heel grabber anymore. But your name is now Israel. And I love this, this word Israel, this name Israel. There's a footnote in the New International Version. It comes from joining two words together in the Hebrew that would mean struggles with God. Or since it's related to a person, he struggles with God. And he's just wrestled with God. And he realizes that he's been fighting with God his whole life. He's been, yes, fighting with people, but all the time behind that, he has been fighting with what God had planned for him. And God gives him a new identity in this moment. You are someone who has been struggling with God. And yes, as a result, you've been struggling with people. But now Israel, now that you have finally surrendered, now that you've finally given up and you're not fighting me anymore, you have won. You have struggled with God. You have struggled with other people. And you have overcome. And it came at the point of Jacob's confession. It came at the point where Jacob named himself, where he admitted who he was. And and through surrender, it was the only way that he finally became a champion because it's not until we reach the end of ourselves that we can find God's new beginning. We will never get to God's way traveling our way. We'll never get to God's future by chasing our own dreams. We have to be brought to the end of ourselves. And that's where Jacob finally found himself. And we see this continue. This, this goes on. This is not a new thing or a one-time-off incident. We see this all through the ministry of Jesus, time and time again, bringing people to the end of themselves. Time and time again, bringing people to the point to recognize their failures. The rich young ruler had to face his greed, had to face his broken ideals. The young woman at the well had to admit that she had been married five times and was sleeping with a sixth guy. Peter, even Peter, the one that got the keys to the church, had to face his own pride and his ego and his unbelief and his lies. But God never leaves us at the point of our confession because God is the God of redemption. God is the God of reconciliation. God is the God of restoration. And he does not bring you to the end of yourself to humiliate you and to rub it in your face, but he does it to lift your eyes up to a brand new day, to lift your eyes to a brand new way of existing. Oh, come on in this room. Can you give God praise today? Come on, is there anybody that has found this? Come on, is there anybody in the room that's found mercy and healing? It's in that moment that we realize this is so powerful. This is so powerful. It's in that moment that we realize I am fully known, but yet I am fully loved. I am fully known. Like every weakness, every failure, Every time that I've cried out, like Iran over here, just God. Every time that I've messed up, 
Every time that I've hurt someone, I am fully known, but I'm fully loved. Bishop used to say this for years and years and years. He who knows me the best loves me the most. When we know ourselves, and the opposite of that should be true. We don't want people to know us. We don't want people to know our past and our failures, but with Jesus, confession leads to redemption, not condemnation. And I'm not afraid to tell you this morning that we are all sinners, including you. We are all broken, including you. We are all flawed, including you. Why am I not scared to tell you that? Because with God, that's not the identity that you are stuck with. Who you have become may not be who you plan to be. And Jacob finally understood one of the most beautiful and hope-filled things that I could tell you today, that God was fighting for Jacob even when Jacob was fighting against God. We run from God. We push God away. We put God on hold. We put God on the back burner and we do life on our own, all by ourselves. We reject God. We fight against conscience. We fight against church. We fight against belonging. We fight against surrender. And all the time that we are fighting against God, He is always and ever in mercy fighting for us. Fighting for us. Fighting for us to bring us to the end of ourselves. To bring us to the end of ourselves. See, none of us wants to confess, but God knows that it's for our best. Nobody wants to reach the end of ourself. Come on, nobody wants to reach the point where just everything's chaos and mess. But listen, you can't find him until you lose sight of yourself. You can't put your eyes on Jesus until you get your eyes off of yourself. And when Jacob finally surrendered, he won God's blessing. When he stopped trying to fight against what God was trying to give him, he could finally receive what God wanted to give him all along. And Jacob became a new man. Jacob received a new promise and a new blessing, a new way of seeing life all from a new identity that he got when he stopped fighting against God. Can we all stand this morning in the room? See, when Jacob decided to let God plan who he would be the next day, Jacob found redemption for all his yesterdays. When he finally gave up his own plans and let God be the one who directed his life, he found purpose in all of the pain. He found some meaning, some, some hope, some glimmer, some silver lining and all of the clouds that shadowed the path that he had walked the day before. And I wonder for you this morning, what behind you, what in your past have you been wrestling with that is defining you, and you've been struggling and fighting against it, and you don't want it to be your story. You don't want it to be who you are. You don't have to leave here with that hanging over your head anymore. You don't have to leave here and live with that. You can have a brand new day. You can have a brand new identity. God can change your name today. So that's what we saw happening right here in this water this morning. People leaving a past buried there. People leaving a past buried there and rising to walk into a brand new future. And it's only possible with Him. For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.